0: Are Here at 11FS headquarters in London, we work for episode 10 of Blockchain Insider. Today, well, it's all gone a bit mental, hasn't it? The People's Bank of China declared initial coin offerings and token sales illegal. We're going to talk about that one a little bit. Crypto markets tumbled by 20%. We talked to Patrick Merck, who's arguably the lawyer in the space. And of course, last but not least, Paris Hilton is joining and getting involved in an ICO Anyway, on with the news. Okay, today for the news, we have Colin G. Platt returning. Colin G. Platt, how are you, sir? I'm doing fantastic today. And we have a guest appearance, a guest star, none other than FinTech Insider's own, Jason Bates. Jason, how are you? It,
1: I'm good. It's a crossover episode, people. Yeah. <gasps> Is
0: this like when the Fonz turns up in Mork and Mindy or something like that? I was just, thinking more Marvel, but yeah.
1: um, but I'll go for the Fonz, I think.
0: We're totally going to jump the shark on this show. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it just happened. You heard it. All right, Colin, you got to lead us through this one a little bit it has all gone a little bit mental in the last few days. Unless you've been hiding under a rock, you may have heard the news that the People's Bank of China came out and said that token sales or ICOs are illegal. Well, if you follow Blockchain Insider and you listen to us as
2: far back as last week... We kind of warned you that China was going to look into this. Um, China came out with a new set of rules and a new set of regulations on fundraising. And they decided that uh, ICOs may have been a problem. We told you about this last Thursday. Um, over the weekend, so just right after this, um, they decided that a lot of these ICOs were, in fact, illegal fundraising. So people were, in the US, we'd call this uh, an illegal securities offering. Other places, it's just raising money illegally. Uh, that's what they decided in China. So we were kind of aware of this. They had raised a lot of money. There were a lot of questionable investments, quote unquote investments, coming out of China. And they came out and said, people doing the distribution, very specifically, not the technology companies, the people doing distribution, talking to clients, saying, give me your money, I will give you these tokens. They said that was illegal. And they said, not only is it illegal, you can't do any more in the future, you need to refund that money, which is very difficult in blockchain because they're not known for doing
0: refunds. Uh So this distribution piece, this affects the exchanges that hold these tokens, your cryptocurrency exchanges. As much, if not as more, than the people who are making these tokens up out of thin air?
2: Not entirely. So the main uh, exchanges that we know, like uh, the Coinbases of the world, were not necessarily affected directly in this, Um, especially on things like Bitcoin and Ethereum, and that's very important. The mainstream virtual currencies were noted inside of this. They said they're not legal money, um, but they're fine other than that. This is specifically the people doing distribution. For those that are newer into this, in China and in a few other places, you, you could go to a website and they say, We have all these lists of these ICOs coming out. You send us money in generally Bitcoin or Ether, and we will help you invest them in it. They do have a primitive exchange function, which you're no longer allowed to have. But these are not the major Chinese exchanges like BTCC, uh, Huboy, or the other ones. These are specific smaller things that if
0: you're not a mainland Chinese investor, you probably have never heard of. But Jason, this was always going to happen, wasn't it? These are cowboys raising insane amounts of money, 250 million and more in the space of weeks and sometimes hours. And there's not always a very clear set of investor protections. Maybe this is a bit harsher than we thought, but would this just not fit in ex- inside existing laws? I mean, that's what China have essentially said here, right?
1: Well, you know that tokens both excite me and are uh, just deeply scary things. Mm-hmm. I think where they've been used as with the the wikipedia definition of token, you know, a voucher that can be exchanged for goods or services, then I'm in. I think that's, you know, a great use case. Filecoin, all of those those guys, I'm there. But when you're masquerading as a security and calling it a token, then you're on super dodgy ground. I was telling you before the show, I looked back at the history of the SEC because I think one of the interesting things in in regulation is uh are that regulations come after some crisis or collapse or massive crime and actually in the in the roaring 20s uh 50 billion dollars of new securities became available extremely quickly you know it was that that sudden moment of wow new instrument let's go for it boys um and over a number of years half of those became worthless which then led the uh, congress to create in 1933 34 a whole series of regulations on exchanges on brokers on dealers so that you could protect investors and and while you know half of the uh, securities became worthless, I'm sure there were some multi-millionaires in there. You know that that their descendants are still living on those uh, revenues today. But it, it protects us against that that half of the population that lost everything. And I think that that's the interesting point of you know is this thing a token that can just be exchanged for goods or services? Is it a security? And if it's a security, there have been some fairly good historical preferences where normal investors have just lost a ton of cash.
0: Uh, The really interesting one to me is Filecoin. So Filecoin went and issued a security which investors that are professional went and bought. So you had Sequoia and Union Square Ventures and A16Z buying shares in a company. Uh, Whereas then they launched a token and that token was only available to accredited investors inside the US. But it was still, you weren't being issued shares. They were quite clear you weren't being issued shares. But just to be absolutely sure, they made sure they only sold it to accredited investors, which is kind of sad on one side because uh, that means that URI, who might not have the $5 million in the bank we need to be an accredited investor, can't get involved in these sales as easily, but also it means that somebody has to do due diligence before the investment can take place. I mean, where do you fall down on that, Colin? And are banks and and all the big names that have been sort of saying, hey, we can't touch this stuff with a barge pole, just been vindicated now? Or is there still something here? I think it's slightly more complex
2: than that. I mean, there are the big brand name ones we're hearing about that are raising these enormous sums. And because they're raising these enormous sums, by and large, they're trying to do things properly. A lot of these things that have been shut down and all the news has come out, I'm looking on one of the sites, it's called ICO Gogo, and it's all in Chinese. So I've got Google Translate up in front of me. But they're launching things called like DLC, which apparently is an asset transaction platform for digital equity tokens. They raised uh, 3,000 Bitcoin, Swiss Chain, which apparently invests in the Swiss REIT market, from China. Treasure Continent, which is a virtual game. These aren't things we know of in in the West. These are not things you regularly hear about. Uh, I think as far as if we look back in the 1920s example, these would be the ones that definitely collapsed. These came up overnight, were launching every single day, and it was just really kind of a bucket shop. Um, whether, Whether Filecoin eventually is ruled illegal or not by a US or a Western European regulator remains to be seen, but I think they put a lot more money into making sure where they could comply, they did comply. That doesn't mean they've done everything perfectly,
0: but at least they've tried to some extent. Yeah, there's, there's that trying element and that element of the big names doing something a little bit more by the book. There are existing laws here. And in fact, what China's done isn't make a new law to to deal with anything. They've just enforced the existing laws and it's the first example of that. And it felt like at first people panicked. I mean, is this cause for panic, Colin? The market dropped by 20%. That's panic, right?
2: Okay, well, let's take that in two parts. First, if you are a distributor of ICOs, um, they are deathly afraid. Um, I saw one thing that came out of a WeChat that somebody was circulating on Twitter. It was an exchange between somebody that worked at one of these distributors and somebody who'd purchased an ICO token. It effectively was the ICO distributor said, send me your bank account details. I need to send you money. And they said, no, I want my tokens. They said, no, 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 you, we need your bank account details. We have to refund you. And they said, I'm not afraid of the, the Chinese government. They said, we don't care. We are. <laughs> like, wow. uh, We talked about this. The death penalty is not off the table for these guys. Whether it'll actually happen... I don't know. Uh, That might be hyperbole, but they will be very severe.
1: But that's one of the interesting things about national regulators on the Internet. You know, suddenly someone sitting in a, I don't know, a a semi-detached house in Birmingham launches an ICO, sends out these tokens, and the SEC could come after them you know, from across the, a, a, a thousand miles away. Uh, and the Chinese government could actually, if they sell uh, essentially what's something that's deemed to be a legal security to someone in China, could be could potentially give them the death penalty. That's, uh, that's crazy town.
2: It's really crazy. And this is why people need to be very careful. And we say this every single time we have this show and talk about ICOs, which is pretty much every week. Don't take unnecessary risks. Do your research, do your homework, whether you're investing, whether you're thinking about creating an ICO. Now let, let's talk about the markets. Yes, the markets completely sold off. Bitcoin I think was down 10%. NEO, which is one of it was billed as the Ethereum of China was down some 60% in US dollar terms. Uh, it was a complete sell off. Most of that has come back up. We're now recording this on Wednesday. Uh, most of it's come back, but it's still below the all-time high, but it is if you didn't look at the markets for 2 weeks, you'd still be way up. So I I don't think that we've completely panicked. There are still a lot of uses that are not ICOs and that are not Chinese speculative ICOs. So the market has pretty much shaken this off. uh, And I think that's a good thing. Um, But a lot of people did panic sell and probably lost a lot of money because they thought this was the end of it. And a lot of people don't necessarily have faith in cryptocurrencies over the long term.
0: So Colin, I keep hearing that there's a lot of institutional money waiting on the sidelines trying to get into this space. News like this surely discourages that.
2: Yes and no. Uh, it depends on your view of whether ICOs are a long-term thing. It depends on your views of the underlying cryptocurrencies, the bitcoins, the ethers, whether those are worth something long-term. And I think there's a lot of institutional money as evidenced by some of the things like the SIBO, uh, the Chicago Board of uh, Options Exchange, uh, has decided to launch a future on Bitcoin. I think there's a lot of people that are really interested in where this could go and don't see it as just a bubble. Yes, maybe it's overvalued right now, but there's a difference between being a tulip mania bubble and just having booms and busts.
0: А.Семкин Корректор А.Егорова I saw a really great tweet from Richard Burton, who was on the podcast last week, uh, where he looked at the desktop internet versus mobile internet. And desktop and laptop usage of the internet hasn't really declined in the past decade. In fact, it's been fairly rock solid. What has happened is mobile internet came along and just exploded. And so if you look at that as a bar chart with mobile over the top of desktop internet, he was making the example that you could say the same about financial services. This is the existing world of financial services that will trundle along quite nicely and not really grow not really shrink it just is what it is but what you have is in this new world is entirely new headroom
1: for growth and new opportunity and that is exciting but it's this uh this way in which the crypto community are, are so isolated in some respects from financial services or other fintechs because crowdfunding's been around for for quite a while and you might argue ICOs are a great method of doing crowdfunding. There are regulations there. There are things that, you know, protect customers. Hey, Monzo raised a million in 96 seconds through that uh, use case. So if could that have been an ICO? Yeah, I guess technically it could have been. And are there regulations around that? So there's something about the, you know, getting those lawyers involved, like the lawyer you had on a few couple of episodes ago was, was talking about, like, playing with like in some ways within the system or on the fringes evolving rather than saying we are totally paradigm shifting completely new nothing to do with anything else and we're going to sit way over here and do our own thing like happened with the dow where they said code is law and and the law can't touch us sort of thing I, i think at the end
2: of the day i mean where do cryptocurrencies where do blockchains make sense it's where you're either underserved or you just can't be served by the by the mainstream. And I'm looking at a message that somebody that uh, on the show we know from a bank, um, we were joking about this. But he said, as a bank, we reserve the right to refuse or remove any account service any anytime without prior notice for a retail bank account. For a lot of people in the world, that is a reality. I mean we sit here quite comfortably because we know we can have multiple bank accounts. There are some people out there in the world because they're not profitable enough or because they're seen as too risky cannot have a bank account. Not having a bank account in the 21st century can literally kill people. Um, if you cannot get access to a bank account, you might not be able to get a job. And this is an opportunity for them. Whether that becomes the main driver or the largest usage of bank accounts, I don't know. But it's an option.
0: I think it's worth saying as well, China has been really progressive, as has the PBOC, in terms of their own experiments with blockchain technology like these guys are trying to build things and trying to progress it and and invest in the space there's a lot of uh ethereum development and ethereum developers that have been based in china their devcon 2 was out there there was a whole bunch of excitement around it so it 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 seems like we've had a panic because the regulators did a thing and that term death penalty was used and people have reacted very very quickly but as you say like this seems to be one of those things that maybe we'll just forget about. If you're new to crypto, you're going to hear the the
2: acronym a lot, F-U-D or FUD, uh, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. It happens a lot. Markets drop, then markets go back up. If you have an asset that's appreciating 700,000% in a year, expect volatility.
1: Mm-hmm. I think something that that very few people who uh, who are in financial services would disagree with is that blockchain, tokens... ICOs, they will change the fundamental fabric. I mean, it's going to be a crazy bumpy ride as you try and protect large numbers of customers from losing large amounts of money while innovating in the same space. But uh, you know, I, I know we're going to talk about utility settlement coin in a little while, and uh, and just the the sheer numbers of of people that are getting together to work on this new fabric of democratized financial services. It's it's amazing. I mean, it is the hottest thing.
0: Without question, I was talking to somebody who's uh, in the middle of doing uh, a token generation event, as they call it, and they were trying to raise VC money a couple of years ago for what I think is. A, a, I was talking to them because I think they're very smart and they have a fantastic idea, in my opinion. Uh, however, the VCs just weren't attaching to it. Now, blockchain's dead, blockchain's over, and then they came back and said we're doing a token sale, and all of the VCs started queuing up at them. There is there is definitely something about strike while well, the iron's hot going on here, without question. Mm-hmm. Um, and speaking of uh, a company that did quite well with their initial VC investment. There's a company called Kik. Some of you may have heard of Kik Messenger. Uh, They're based out of Canada. They're sort of like a a poor man's WhatsApp. These guys um, had been around for a couple of years. Uh, One of their main investors is in fact Tencent. Tencent invested uh, $50 million into Kik in 2015 as part of their Series D but they just don't seem to be have had uh, subscriber growth. Well, these guys raised another $50 million ahead of a token sale for their new cryptocurrency. So they're launching a cryptocurrency called Kin. Um, what's going on here, Colin? Well, first, I'm trying to understand what a poor man's WhatsApp is. I thought it was a dollar a year.
2: I mean, most people can no, afford even that. got
1: rid of that. Like, it's is, free. <laughs> it's
2: completely free. And you got Facebook Messenger as well. Right? All right. Um, this is an interesting one. We talked on the show about this before when they were first uh, examining the prospect. What's still really unclear to me is why do you need a token and a messenger? Um, maybe somebody's got an idea.
1: So I I had to sort of look into this. I'm um I'm fascinated by those user stories and the the questions of so what? Like so how do I spend that? How do I earn it? What is this currency? What do I do? So Kick have been around since 2009, based in Canada, 300 million users. I think something like 50 million uh monthly active users at the moment. And a few years ago, I think between 2014-2016, they did a trial around this thing called kick points. Essentially, uh, you would go on, you would watch a video, you would watch an ad, they would give you points. You could spend those points to get sticker packs or to use with bots. They've got 20,000 chat bots that do a variety of things on there. And it would just work very w- well for them. They had, th- uh, on an average day, 300,000 transactions a day. And I think they point out in their white paper that that was three times the, the Bitcoin monthly transactions just on this points system that they were using. So they decided that actually... There was something to this. There's something in in an ecosystem around the earning and the spending of currencies within a chat interface that was that was useful. So they stopped in 2016 and obviously started working on this. And so this takes that and extends it uh, because they now it's not now not only kick points kin, which can then be used on other apps or or within an extended you know, family. So the use cases they bring are, for example, let's make a fintech insider or blockchain insider group and we'll make it premium so that we don't get everyone in and you'll get new insights and you're going to have to pay two kin uh, a week for that. Or we'll do a special blockchain insider uh, recording with real, the real insider news of what's going on, and you'll pay to have access to that. Or there'll be a shout-out message. So against all of those people who subscribe to the Blockchain Insider group, we'll, we'll get a, a kind of premium shout-out on their... Uh, their kick interface to say there's a new episode out, come and come and find it. Or there's tipping, so people we can it's like a Patreon thing of you know, do you like the show? Why not support us by giving us a few kin. So there's all of these kinds of things on the spend side, and then on the kind of buying side, how do you earn them? What micro jobs do you do? Is it through your attention, or or something like Mechanical Turk, where you're delivering something? So so they've had they're looking at this sort of uh, I guess ecosystem. Of earning through attention and actions, spending uh, through virtual goods or ecosystems, and then extending that out, taking that kick points idea and allowing other apps in order to then to build onto it. We talk a lot
0: on Fintech Insider about how WhatsApp and Facebook haven't really been able to do what WeChat did in China, which is build that ecosystem of low-cost payments. Because every time they'd looked at doing it, they'd looked at doing it with cards. And the card payment economics just don't stack up. If you try and integrate debit card to doing like a couple of dollar cents or a couple of euro cent transactions actually it costs you 25 cents to do the transaction to send two euro cents or two dollar cents so it just doesn't make any sense to do these things and that's why one of the reasons i think that facebook messenger telegram whatsapp haven't got the micropayments economy and the second point the one jason raises is They haven't thought about how people are going to use it in terms of you've got these points. How do you spend these things? How do you earn them? What would you spend them for? What would be the new user stories? I think is a really interesting way to look at it. I hadn't thought of that. So my my highlights and lowlights
2: on this is first, (laughs) let's let's look at the, the positive. What's really interesting is the notion that you can have an economy inside of your app. And I think that uh, if you're a budding economist and you want to be an internal economist of an internal economy, uh, this is a new career opportunity for you. Uh, there's lots of really interesting reasons why you might want to make payments inside of apps. And having a blockchain to do that is a fantastic way to set that up. Now onto to the lowlights of it. <laughs> As a purist, um, this thing it doesn't really function as a blockchain. Um, they've raised money through an ERC20 token, which is kind of the gold standard of, of ICO raises. Uh, it's a very standardized D app or application side of Ethereum, uh, that functions to raise money and works in some controlled ways. Um, what they've said is everything's going to be centralized inside of a database. So as far as I can understand, they're a money service provider. Um, they do transfers inside their database based off some tokens that move inside of their database and they control the whole thing. Um, so if you're looking for the truly decentralized revolution, uh, this might not be it quite yet, um, but it is a really interesting idea. Because it does bring the ideas economics that we look at inside of cryptocurrencies and brings that inside of it an application that's used by 300 million people.
0: What gets interesting though is when you come out of their centralized database with kin. So you can take those kin and you can sell them for something else. You could sell them for Bitcoin. You could sell them for air miles. You could sell them. There are other things you could sell them for. That's novel and new, I think. So-
1: and I didn't I haven't read the the white paper completely but I guess it's also interesting as to whether that centralization is uh, is just the first step uh, and if WhatsApp suddenly came along and Facebook Messenger and a variety of other players whether suddenly you then get more into that private blockchain uh, approach very interesting idea uh, last story up we got a bit of a fun one here Paris
0: Hilton is promoting an ICO Colin, why is Paris Hilton, like the Hilton group not doing so well? You know, I don't know.
2: (laughs) Um, It's interesting. So we all had a good laugh about this uh, when it came out. Um, to taking a step back, um, Paris Hilton has been involved in blockchain in, behind the scenes since at least 2000, late 2016. So a lot of people that like to joke about this um, haven't been inside of blockchain as long as she has, which is nice. Um, it, it does seem kind of like um, peak hype or maybe even a few steps beyond this. Um, she's very close with the Slocket Group, which, of course, famously raised the Dow, uh, which raised $150 million and then went on to lose $60 million a few weeks later uh, because of a hack. Um and uh, I
0: love how you can just throw that away by the way. They raised 150 million and lost 60 million because of a hack. Anyway, <laughs> welcome to blockchain.
2: <laughs> um so she is now well she put out a tweet effectively saying she's very very much looking forward to uh Lindian uh coin or something like that, which touts itself as the first AI big data marketing cloud for blockchain. Blockchain with a capital C by the way. Um so as mini buzzwords as you can get in one uh tweet this has done it i think they're only missing what machine learning but you got ai so that pretty much covers most of it
0: (laughs) so i'm not close enough to know if this is for real or not i know that uh generally, whilst the public perception of uh, the, the heir to the Hilton fortune is, is somewhat frivolous, that actually there's a steely business sense behind there, and that this wouldn't be something that's been progressed unless a lot of accountants and advisors had signed it off. But we're seeing a lot of celebrities. I mean, Floyd Money Wayweather didn't just do a heist of $100 million, he's also now pumping ICOs himself, um, and there's several others. So like, th- wh- why are celebrities but, getting involved?
1: But- but why wouldn't you? If you're going to organise something that could potentially raise hundred million, and you need to actually break through the noise, so great. Colin's looking at uh, ICO Gogo. Um, would we have spoken about Lydian without Paris having been involved? Which would it have made the programme? No. So suddenly there you go. What, whatever on? it's costing, you know we're getting. It's, I think we were talking before. It's like the George Foreman grill. Like it's a grill that's connected to George Foreman, you know, someone used a celebrity name in order to sell something that arguably is a a commodity. Maybe, but maybe it's damaging
0: for your credibility as well because Filecoin didn't need that. BAT token didn't need that. Tezos didn't need that. There are a whole bunch of – EOS didn't need it, but they spent a lot of money on marketing. There are other routes to goal. I just wonder if this is actually more damaging to your credibility than it is supportive, especially in a market where most of the people who are buying the tokens are already crypto nerds who are crypto rich. Then does this damage you more than it helps? Well, there's an interesting question.
2: We talk a lot about how people find it hard to get paid directly. And celebrities, believe it or not, also have this problem. They have built, they've amassed this following of hundreds of thousands or not, if not millions of Twitter followers. But how do you get paid for that? And sometimes it goes through 18 different layers and they only get pennies on the dollar. Um, this is a pretty directly uh, easy way to go and say, I'll take a big chunk of those tokens. I'll go out, I'll market it. And boom, my tokens are now worth 100 times what they would have been. Um,
1: so what you're saying is we really need a Kardashian coin. Like that is the, uh, that's I would the like play. an
2: Ivanka Trump coin. <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's a
0: matter of time. Okay, but enough about Paris Hilton. Uh, don't forget, if you agree with anything we've said in response to these news stories, maybe Paris Hilton is the greatest thing to happen to ICOs ever. Get in touch on Twitter at Insider to share your thoughts or drop us an email at podcasts at 11FS.com. We'd love to hear from you. And don't forget, 11FS, we provide consultancy services for banks and technology companies, helping you deliver real-world projects with new technologies, new ideas, or for new customer segments. Boom. Uh, That's how we do. Okay, so I'm going to throw it to the adverts. So we are going to Blockchain Live on the 20th September at the Brewery in London. I'll be chairing the main stage and it promises to be a fantastic event with an agenda packed full of amazing and insightful speakers. If you want to join us there, Blockchain Insider listeners can get a whopping 50% discount off the tickets using the following discount code, M11FS. Come join us in London and I'll see you soon. That's M11FS. Check us out. Right. So we're going to get into a little bit of a discussion now. Colin and I were talking earlier in the week, and we still believe that Bitcoin's considered a bit of a no-go zone for banks. The experience that customers have that are trying to buy Bitcoin is still really, really hard. It feels like cryptocurrencies are starting to cross into the mainstream, and yet banks generally have a position that, hey, we can't touch this stuff. Why do we think that is? If anybody's ever used a
2: Bitcoin exchange
0: of any way, shape or form, generally
2: the way you get money into those exchanges is through a simple bank transfer. Um, rarely do they take credit cards. And if they do, you have a massive markup because there's huge risk. I mean, Bitcoin goes one direction and doesn't go backwards um, and credit cards can go backwards. So you leave the um, person doing the trading potentially in a, in a very risky position. The other way to go is, of course, on the street. Uh, there's things like local Bitcoins where you meet people in real life and you hand them dollar bills or 20 pound notes and they send you Bitcoin to your wallet. Now that also carries risks. Um, a few months ago, there was somebody in London who famously got attacked while trying to do that,
1: um, in Euston station, if you're following. Um, did he just approach some random person and say, I'd like to buy Bitcoin from you and then essentially got a punch or?
2: Well, I think it was prearranged. <laughs> it was prearranged, but, uh, they were sitting in a cafe and there was a, there was a, I think a burlap sack full of (laughs) coins (laughs) and uh, sending these on the phone and the guy got punched in the face or something. You you can look these things up. but uh, It would be a good thing to uh, look into those more, but let's just say they're risky. (laughs) Um, Using your bank account is also risky. So people a few years ago talked a lot about um, unnamed banks that some people on the show may have used to work at that were shutting down their accounts for using things like Coinbase um today they've just decided instead of shutting down your bank account they'll just blacklist them so you try to send money to coinbase or kraken or any of the other ones and the money just doesn't go um now this is obviously a frustration if you want to buy bitcoin because not only does it cost a little bit of money send money in um, but it may not go you may lose money your bank account may get closed down there's a lot of risk to it now coming the other direction when you've made all these fresh new crypto gains or crypto losses and you're done with it and you want to get out uh, that could be risky as well and your money could get lost and that's not even if your money gets lost because you lost your private keys or because
0: your exchange got goxed. There's a whole bunch of risk out there. And yet I'm not convinced that the risk that the banks perceive is really what it, what's actually out there. Uh, when you look at a Bitcoin exchange or a Bitcoin wallet, it looks an awful lot like a money service business. Here is an organization that I rely on to look after its customers and move money for its customers. I can't see what goes on inside their world, but this happens today. I've got, uh, as, a, as a large bank, I would have relationships with all types of people who move money. World Remit, um, Western Union, those sorts of companies all, all rely on banks. And banks rely on those companies to know who their customers are and uh, try and manage fraud and uh, to have like a senior management regime and to have really good processes and a compliance team and all that kind of really dull stuff. Banks go in and say, do you have all the dull stuff? And then the, the company goes, yeah, I got all the dull stuff, and everyone goes, everyone's a winner
1: you could do that with blockchain companies quite easily no i mean financial crime dark net money laundering anti-terrorist funding you know the number of regulations that banks have to protect uh, you know and deliver against is huge especially on that that financial crime side yeah. and the ability to send uh whether, it, whether rightly or wrongly and I'm sure we can get into a non- anonymity can't even say the word you know, uh, an anonymity. yes that um,
2: <laughs> welcome to the club <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, but the perception that suddenly funds go into a black hole and come out of a black hole and suddenly arrive anywhere else in the it's kind it, of like it, cash it. isn't it well it is but banks actually banks use
2: cash still don't they
1: you try and go out, go and get twenty grand of uh, cash from a, a uh, from your bank, and we'll see how. If, if how I that do, goes. I won't let
2: anybody know before I do. <laughs> uh, no,
1: I mean, like getting cash is in large sums is just difficult now. Like, it, 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 you put it filling a suitcase with twenty pound notes takes a lot of effort, and, and rightly so, you know, some would say.
2: The, the question I, I like to ask people that talk about, you know, money coming in and out, and because it's electronic and it's not cash. I always question, and I'm not a payments expert, what happens if I walk into a UK bank with a foreign debit card? Do I get KYC because – or do they just assume that my my foreign bank has done it? So I've got a Chinese bank account. I walk in with my uh, Chinese debit card. How do I get KYC? They assume the foreign
0: bank has done it. And they'll go through either Visa to the Visa limits or they'll go through the uh, SWIFT network to, to their SWIFT correspondent banking partners. And they have a system of reliance. Banking system works today by relying on the other person and the other part of the network, either Visa or the other bank if it's SWIFT. Which, to Jason's point, means ah, now I've got this thing where I can't rely on anybody. It's just this network of a black hole. Well, no, because that perception's not quite what reality is. There are bits of the Bitcoin network where it is just a black hole. And I can't see what's going on. But generally, people that are in that part of the network are not the people that are going to the bank branch to go and fill up a suitcase with cash. Those people are pretty much off the grid anyway. They're going to be hard to find. What we're talking about here is you or I or anybody else who wants to move a small amount of personal money into a cryptocurrency exchange because they heard about this Bitcoin thing on the news. Those sorts of people tend to have a relationship directly with their bank and everything they do would be with something easy to use like a Coinbase or a Kraken. Now Coinbase or Kraken tend to KYC their customers. They tend to uh, have a full transaction history. They tend to report all of that transaction history. They tend to be actually really mature when it comes to some of the compliance controls. Some others don't. Some of those organizations are not very mature. And I think what's interesting to me is, will we see the evolution of those controls in those companies? Because that's the real sticking point there are there's like a benchmark that a bank would expect somebody to get to and some of those companies don't feel like they're getting to it and sometimes it's because they're doing something a different way and sometimes it's just because they don't want to do it the old way and sometimes they might just be being stubborn
1: but is there other virtues of of something like bitcoin that uncensorable currency that can be sent anywhere that you can create a node and suddenly it's like you're on the swift network does that not create this sort of hawks and doves uh game theory approach where actually it will always be worth a few people breaking and bending the rules and doing the illegal stuff just because that's how it, you know, actually in the in the market, that's how it would work.
0: But we, I remember um, I had the good fortune of working with DARPA, as in the, the research arm of the US military in late 2014 and the guys at Chain.com and we looked at the Bitcoin network back then and we've looked at it several times since and done similar analyses with the likes of Chainalysis. And when you break down the use cases of the Bitcoin network you can see very clearly that 60 to 70% of the use is people holding Bitcoins because they think the value is going to appreciate. Around about another 20 to 25 percent is people trading bitcoins and then there are some people buying or moving money around the world and and that sort of stuff but it looks fairly legal it's low amounts it's fairly obvious where the money flows are and you see about two to three percent of what looks like criminal activity now according to the guys that we were talking to in DARPA that's roughly the same as you'd see in any payment instrument except cash where you'd expect it to be closer to 7 to 8%. So the data just doesn't back up the argument that this thing is really really bad. I think there is a perception though because of wannacry and because of this idea of dark nets and dark webs and the theater that we have every time a dark web a dark net site is taken down. People assume that it must be for bad things and forget about what's going on in cash. We talked about it um, as as a metaphor uh, uh, when we were on fintech insider's talking about how when HSBC introduced voice biometrics, voice biometrics then got hacked and it was there was a journalist who waved their arms saying, oh my goodness, voice biometrics is bad because somebody was able to hack it. Well, actually, it's probably a lot better than what you used to have. It doesn't mean it's perfect. And I wonder if that's something that's holding people back because they don't see enough customer demand.
2: I think a lot of it's just new, and banks are generally pretty bad at dealing with things that are new until their hands are forced. I mean, banks were not the first ones on the internet, were they? Uh, Banks were not the first ones to come up with all these cool security features. It was from technology, and a lot of it came from Google and other places that needed them for emails and things like that, and banks went, oh, that's not a bad idea. Why don't we do two-factor
0: authentication? But I wonder about that opportunity cost. If we go back to what Rich uh, Burton's tweet was about, uh, that the financial services industry stays broadly steady, except... At the moment, regulation looks like it's a less profitable business than it used to be. There are more fintechs coming into the market. You find yourself in a position where you think, what are the opportunities? And now there is the beginnings of something that looks like a genuine movement, and it's happening in finance. Disruption.
1: Yeah, which, which I could e- very easily see that you'd get someone like – curve or revolut or you know maybe not a banking licensed organization but someone who's doing that sort of day-to-day financial side of things connecting into bitcoin in some way and that would be an interesting you know interesting test case i guess to we've see how that works we've seen that with works. eToro um, and revolut and transferwise allow you to i think to some degree buy bitcoin now
0: uh, i think we will see that more and more with the dabbles and the Robin Hoods in the fintech world so these are the sort of small uh, investor mobile apps where it's mobile only i manage my savings and investments on the mobile device those sorts of apps yeah. could be the place where you see cryptocurrencies like popping into the real world uh, and inside your pension plan without you even noticing it
1: i'm not going to use any of those until a celebrity i like you know really yeah. gets into it you know oh, i think am we i would... not
0: enough of a celebrity for you jason
1: no no who were we saying was the uh, the the guy that we definitely have the this... rock it's got to be the rock I'm in any ICO the Rock
2: backs.
0: Well, guys, I mean, tweet us at Bee Insider. Who would your celebrity uh, ICO token sale ideal candidate be? We've got to
1: think about it. I'm thinking
0: uh, Seal with Kiss from a Rose, like Kiss from a Token or something. Just oh
1: no, no, come on! The, I, I've got to go with Colin the the Rock. He, he has that. Like he's a wrestler. He's huge. Like he's like the manly man and he's just such a nice guy. He, you trust him, wouldn't he? you? You would trust him with your money. Maybe he he wouldn't let tooth anyone burying. like fuck with with your cash.
2: Absolutely. I'm totally invested in his ideas. <laughs> can I can I just Rock d- token. reflect on this for a second? I think for the first time a lot of people who are not underbanked, um, people like us are starting to experience these these moments of friction because of Bitcoin. I really get pissed off the idea that my bank would say, no, you can't do this. I mean, I get told by enough people I can't do something. Um, having my bank where I keep money and they make money out of my money um, tell me that I can't do something with my money really, really pisses me off. And a lot of people have never experienced this because they're doing things that are legal and they generally don't censor this. By doing something that isn't illegal and, you know, the U.S. government, the U.S. Marshall sold off Bitcoin. So the U.S. government knows about it. The, the U.K. government has said it's currency as far as we're concerned. Why are they telling me I can't do this if I've done everything that I should and it's my money anyways?
0: Interesting question. So, uh just a, a side point, we did see the story this week where HSBC, Barclays, and several others joined a thing called Utility Settlement Coin. This is a very different thing to what we talk about when we talk about cryptocurrencies. What was Utility Settlement Coin? So the idea of Utility Settlement Coin, as far as I'm aware, because it is
2: kind of um, a dark thing, uh, is uh, multiple banks need to be able to send money back and forth to each other. They don't necessarily want to trust somebody in the middle. Generally, this would be um, a payments uh, services. So something generally run by a CSD or central bank, depending on the market, where banks just clear amongst themselves for large trades, things like interest rate swaps that have millions or billions of dollars worth of risk between these banks. And this is a blockchain way to do it, so you don't need anybody in the middle. Um, now, the, the news on this was that HSBC and Barclays have now joined, bringing the total to 12 uh, banks, looking at this with a, a company called Clearmatics. Uh, it's an interesting project um, to be able to do that on a blockchain because it having some form of cash on a blockchain allows you to build other things that need any form of money to settle on top of it. So it's a great building block. In itself, is it a revolution? Absolutely not. But it's that first building block.
1: I heard a, uh, an interview with Lee Brain uh, at uh, Barclays, and he was talking about the the benefits being counterparty risk. So, you know, we make a transaction, but there's this period of days before where we settle where there's a risk that you might never pay me because you might go out of business or there's some issue there. Uh, together with the amount of capital tied up in this friction, you know, the, the credit risk. Uh, yes, the where is you know actually having to keep money in the in the Bank of England having to move things around like there's a a cost almost like an inventory I guess you know for want of a better word that actually could be you know you can access if you've got instant uh instant settlements and and the other thing that interested me about his um interview was that he was talking about there's also this spectrum of central bank coins. All the way through to the sort of public, you know, Bitcoin style things with like proprietary coins in the middle. And everything he was saying was kind of pointing towards central bank coins um but given that that's quite a few years away like having this utility settlement coin that a group of us agree is almost the sort of intermediate step because we're still going to need to keep money in central banks we're still going to have all of that there's still going to be some interesting friction with how all of those things work but actually when you collapse that and central banks are running this thing then that's interesting
0: so it's interesting as well that this would be a service operated by the banks with the central banks kind of being aware of the fact and putting their arms around it and saying yes we endorse it but it's not the central banks operating a new service to consumers so it wouldn't be you or i putting our money at the central bank it would be hsbc and barclays and and whomever else putting their money at the central bank in a different way but the important point here is it's internationally so the bank of england could talk to the swiss central bank that could talk to the european central bank and all of the national central banks underneath that and that makes it a lot faster you're effectively trading Across central bank balance sheets, uh, which which I can see some benefits too, but to Colin's point, it's more of a building block for the future. Surely,
2: yeah. I think I think there's an important distinction on this because they don't yet have a central bank that said we're going to stand behind this thing. If some if somebody goes bust, a lot of these promises about credit risk or the risk that somebody else fails are still really theoretical. Um, so what they need to do is back these things with collateral. So basically, imagine you go to a casino, you put. 200 pounds behind the desk they give you coins we trade around and then we go back and hope it's still there we're doing that but we're doing that with things like government bonds or things that are worth something in the real world so yes you're getting a benefit you're not getting the full benefit that a bank would hope to have if these things were ever adopted by a central bank which is as we said still a long time to go and that's when you really get most of the benefit or you switch to something that
0: just generally only exists in this virtual realm like a cryptocurrency itself Very cool. All right. So uh, you heard it here. Um, Bitcoin's a bit of a no-go zone for banks. Um, But fortunately, if we want to know more about what's been happening with ICOs and tokens, if we want to learn about some good practice, I spoke to Patrick Merck of Cooley. Great. So I'm here with Patrick Merck. Patrick, great to have you on Blockchain Insider for the first time. How are you keeping, sir? I'm doing great.
3: I'm doing great. Uh, Very much looking forward to it. A big fan of the show. Thanks, Simon.
0: Thank you very much for being with us. So for our listeners, can you just tell us a little bit about your own background, who you are and what you do?
3: Sure. Sure thing. I've sort of had an anti-career when it comes to the law, but um, I'll I'll be happy to describe it at least a little bit. I'll try and keep it brief. My background is as a lawyer. I was trained as a lawyer, uh, grew up in Washington, D.C., went to law school there, went to a law firm there. I left and moved to Seattle and joined a startup in 2009. That had nothing to do with any of this, but ended up pivoting into digital currency in 2009, just about. And all of a sudden, I became an early employee at a startup that was doing digital currency at a very, very early time, um, who also had a law background. So I became the de facto expert in the organization on all the regulations around digital currency at the time. All of that, of course, is we're not talking about decentralized things and Bitcoin and all of that. That had not hit most people's radar, but it did hit our radar Fairly soon thereafter, in around 2010, one of the engineers uh, came into the room and said, hey, have any of you heard of this Bitcoin thing? At which point I took a look at the white paper and I uh, remember commenting to my CEO that somebody had just open sourced their business model. And I sort of just took the deep dive. Shortly thereafter, um, I've been in the space for, I'd say, actively working in the space uh, Bitcoin and blockchain in general. For about a little over six years now, Uh, I've been an entrepreneur, founder, I've been an early employee, an advisor, an investor, a lawyer to startups in the space, so I've kind of done just about
0: everything there is to do. You really have. You really have done just about everything. And what is it you're up to these days? Because uh, I know you've got a a number of affiliations on your LinkedIn at the moment.
3: So I have two, two roles right now. I am a fellow at the Berkman Klein Center at Harvard University, so it's Berkman Client Center for Internet and Society. Um, I lead a project called the Digital Finance Initiative. It's sort of like the sister project to MIT's Digital Currency Initiative, except we have more of a law and policy focus, and, and we aim to support them in some of their efforts that they do. Uh, in addition, I am special counsel at a law firm called Cooley. We're an international law firm that specializes in technology companies. Um, and we have one of the leading practices when it comes to
0: blockchain um, and distributed ledger technology. That's uh, certainly uh, a name I hear regularly in the industry is, is yours. And of course, Cooley. So, um Tell me a little bit about what you're seeing in the space at the moment. We've obviously had some headlines recently, not least from the People's Bank of china uh declaring that i c o s and token sales may well in fact be illegal prior to that, of course, we've had a lot of hype and a lot of mania with people really seeing this as a new area for funding how How are you defining the space at the moment and helping people understand some of the key differences in terminology and then and then sort of react to to what you think? uh it's really like if you're an entrepreneur in this space and and some of the challenges there
3: yeah it it is it's a there is a bit of mania right now which is you know it's nice in some respects but it can be a bit challenging um in others because you get a lot of new energy in the space and people working off of core definitions of different things and poor understanding of what the technology can and should do and that can complicate things uh for them and and Frankly, I think it makes it complicated for regulators, too, to try and sort out what's, what's really happening, um, what really does need to be regulated, and what they can allow to, to, to let slide a little bit. And so the risk is, of course, when you're in a hot market with a lot of people hyping things up, is that as a regulator, you can see things like just a blanket ban or some very aggressive language um, suggesting something could happen like that, which is what we just saw out of the, the People's Bank. Um, ironically, I'm here in Hong Kong. So I have arrived just in time to, uh, to try and sort it out on the ground, maybe. But I I think that's a big risk in the space. I think it's a big risk for for people who are who are really hyping this up as the next thing in terms of fundraising, period, without understanding what the fundraising is, is geared towards and and what the real point of it all is. So I'm happy to get into maybe a little bit of like, what's the point? Like, uh, WTF with these ICOs and um, and what is a blockchain anyways and some of these like basic conceptual questions I do spend a lot of time thinking about I,
0: I think that's crucial Patrick because how to avoid hot water and getting yourself into bother means first understanding what on earth you're dealing with so what, what are we dealing with with token sales ICOs token generation there's a lot of buzzwords out there pick, pick that apart for me a little bit
3: Sure thing. So uh, most fundamentally, we can even start with a blockchain. Like, what is a blockchain? Um, I mean, I'm sure, Simon, you've heard about, what, 150 different definitions for blockchain. I think a lot of people have just given up even on, on on trying to define it. To me, it's pretty clear that a blockchain is not, when people use it, they're not talking about the data structure of blockchain. What they're talking about is a phenomenon that started with Bitcoin. Blockchain data structures go back for decades Um, there's actually nothing new there not that there is anything interesting about it there's nothing particularly new that came out of bitcoin in that regard what happened with bitcoin was that you could have a distributed data set where you've removed the need for human governance right or that's the belief anyways that's the attempt that's what distinguishes bitcoin from say distributed ledger technology Um, Or shared ledgers or distributed database in that regard is this idea of who governs the system at any point in time. And of course, now after Bitcoin, you have Ethereum and you have a number of other tokens that have, uh, and networks and blockchains that have been developed over time. But that's the crucial difference for me. When I say the word blockchain, I mean it very specifically to mean a system that is governed by incentives. And uh, technology and not in algorithms, and not
0: governed by social structures. so you're really talking more about what the banking world calls the permissionless um, blockchains, in which the incentives, in other words, the tokens, the economics uh, govern it rather than there is one entity that is empowered to govern the thing. so that it, there's a there's a differential there.
3: Yeah, or even a consortium of entities, right? And so I try and make this distinction as clear as I can whenever I talk about these issues, that there's distributed ledger tech, where you are taking some of the concepts from distributed database systems and and the work around consensus and distributed database systems, and you're applying it to financial services, but you're doing it within the social construct, right? The governance comes through social governance. There, There are institutions, there's contract laws. There's contract law, there's there's regulation, there's all these things. So you have this blend of public law and private law that governs how that data structure is operated by the different entities and, and the different participants and stakeholders. And blockchain is different in the sense that it just it it, it does away or attempts to do away with that as best as it can. Um, and replaces it with algorithmic
0: governance and incentives. So, now we've defined uh, all things blockchain. Build me up to uh, kind of the token aspect of it a little bit, and so that we can start to un- unpick why there's so much hype here.
3: If I want to use a distributed ledger, and I'm going to build a consortium, and I'm going to use a blend of public and private law to handle all these different things, there's really very little point in trying to issue a token, right? To do that. Right. I'm going to issue a token, and I'm going to say it has value. I mean, it might be a nice in the mania phase because you may be able to collect some money, but it doesn't actually. The token doesn't really do anything for anybody. There's no point. Um, you might as well use U.S. dollars for payments or some sort of paper contract or digitized contract uh, to represent a security interest or in something. Automation digitization is is great, and it's going to have huge, huge benefits for the financial services industry, but that's not what we're talking about when we talk about token sales, or we shouldn't be talking about that. This should be in the quote-unquote permissionless blockchain world, although I think a permission blockchain is an oxymoron, but in the real blockchain world, when we're talking about blockchains and these public systems where there's no governance, uh, social governance going on, you do in fact need to have some sort of token to make the system work to drive the incentives, to ensure that there's consensus uh, around the state of the data at any given point in time. Um, Mostly, the the most interesting tokens that I see also don't just function as some sort of like private currency, but they have some additional value in the network. They prove something um, in addition to payment.
0: So these things have a purpose, right? So they have uh, a meaning because there's no one central party controlling this thing. Because we've evolved away from uh, it's it's Amazon or Google or Facebook in control or the banks in control or a group of banks in control. Nobody's in control. That allows us to build things that we couldn't build before and build business models that we couldn't build before. But in order to do that, we need this economic incentive. But this economic incentive isn't just an incentive. it's also doing something useful, and you you have some examples.
3: Yeah, so um, decentralized storage is a market that is uh, seen a lot of activity, and there are a number of uh, people who are building systems out there. There's one called Sia Sia. There's another called IPFS and Filecoin by Protocol Labs. Uh, within the transactions, it's there's not just a token transaction that says okay, Simon, I'll pay you this token if you store some files on, on your hard drive, right? Um, in addition, there's a proof in that embedded in that transaction that not only am I paying you to do it, but that you're actually doing the thing. And that's what's essential, right? And, and if you talk to people, let's say SIA, for example, they would tell you that the reason they don't use Bitcoin for payment is because they can't, because it can't do the proof, right? So now you've got a network that's very interesting where you're unlocking dead capital from people's laptops and phones and things like that. You're saying, if you have excess memory on your hard drive and you want to sell it, um, we can create a marketplace now so cheaply that we can actually unlock that capital uh, and make it available to the world. And uh, in order to build that network, we need a token, not just for payment, but that where the transactions can actually serve as a proof. That on the other side of the transaction, the person is actually doing what they said they were going to do.
0: A, a thing has happened. I, I think you make a really interesting point there. Proof a thing happened is really valuable, and the token is serving that purpose. So its purpose isn't just I'm moving value around. Somebody's paying for the use of this thing. They're paying for the use of it, and they're getting proof that the thing that they've paid for has been done.
3: And so now let's take it another step and think. If I wanted to build one of these, we should we should we should do this. We should we should do a fintech insider's coin. I mean, why not? I feel like everybody else has done it. It's, it's our turn. Probably shouldn't raise money in China at the moment, but so it, it'll be a low cap, but we'll try it. So if we wanted to do that, the question is, we wanted to build this network. We want to build a blockchain network and say, instead of decentralized storage, we're, we're onto the next thing, which is decentralized computation, right? We want to be able to say, you know, what else we have that said capital out there is spare cycles on, on CPUs everywhere in the world. And I want to be able to start unlocking that value and selling it. I want to build a market for that. And I can do it cheaply with a blockchain. So let's go ahead and we're going to build that network. And we can do some sort of proof of computation or whatever, in addition to the transaction and all those other things. That won't work. Like any marketplace, there at some point, somebody actually has to have these tokens for the thing to work. It can't be like Bitcoin, where you say, hey, world, here's a thing start mining and you know after a few years there might be enough coins in circulation that maybe enough people have their hands on them that maybe it'll work right things are moving too fast now so we need to get the tokens out into people's hands so the market can actually form and we have really two choices right we can either give them away we can do an airdrop which people have done right we could just say we're going to create all these simon coins And we're going to just give them away to anybody who has Bitcoin in a Bitcoin address or Ethereum in an Eth address, and they can prove that. And they can come claim all the free coins they want. And now I've widely distributed the token, so people will use my system. But those don't seem to work very well. I mean, usually in an airdrop or a giveaway, and we saw it with Bitcoin Cash recently, which was, in my opinion, more of an airdrop than a hard fork. Um, People mostly, as soon as they got their hands on it, sold it uh, immediately. Um, because they have no stake in the system. Another way of doing it is to say, we got to get these tokens out there and in wide distribution. Um, Maybe we should create an auction. We should sell them. Um, That way, we raise money to help fund the network and the development of the network. And at the same time, the people who have bought it now have a stake in the network itself. And you've got another proof point that validates that the network has actually got some value there you know set aside that we're in a massive hype cycle right now that's generally the theory for why one might choose to sell tokens for their new network rather than just give them away or, or let people mine them for a couple
0: of years. And and so, what does the optimal strategy look like? We're, we're thinking about our fictional uh, blockchain insider coin because uh, we found a way in which people want to prove a podcast will get made if you give us some funding, for instance. And with our fictional blockchain insider coin, we now want to go about uh, raising this capital. We've seen a number of strategies emerge with some people taking a mixture of traditional venture capital uh, investment and, investment from from around the world uh what's kind of what are what do good behaviors look like and uh good practices that you've seen look like and and what are the things that you would uh, suggest people might want to think about steering clear of
3: there's a lot in that question i'll try and take it more from a legal perspective um since that's what i know the best so there there are a few things in the early days you could sell a token today for a network that doesn't even exist especially if we're building on, say, Ethereum and we're using the ERC-20 standard. I could have a token tomorrow, even if the utility for that token, the thing that you'd actually use it for to pay or prove or do whatever, may be 9, 12 months away um, from me actually doing it. I may even be totally legitimately doing that because I want to actually have some money in the bank to be able to build the network Uh, in the first place. In in other words, if if I don't have money in the bank, I can't hire developers, I can't hire uh, security engineers, things like that. So I might have a a reason to do it. But but that does raise some serious concerns from a legal perspective. Um, If you're selling a token today to somebody that has immediate liquidity, because you're also going to get it listed, or try to get it listed on some markets. uh, And then the network is not to be built, or isn't actually built and you can't actually use the token for any sort of utility at the moment, then it's purely speculative. At least until the network goes live, it's purely speculative. And it's not only speculative, but the value of the coin is more likely than not going to increase based on the efforts, not uh, that I'm making as the investor, but the developers are making and building out the network, which is one of the key factors in what we call the Howey test here in the U.S. Um, which is a test that's been developed over decades to determine whether an investment contract uh, is a security or not a security. And it starts to look a lot like investor risk um, when you're selling tokens before the network is, is actually functional and being built. Now, if you said to me, I'm going to build the network in full, I'm going to sell Simon Coins. You can, you can start you know proving out these podcasts the day you buy the coin then you, I think you have a clear argument that what you're selling is not a security necessarily, but you know, access to a product or service. Um, in which case, it's not so much investor risk we're concerned about, it's consumer risk we're concerned about at that point in time. Different regulators. There is one more step that you can take if, say, you don't have the resources to build a network in time and you need to raise money ahead of time. It's something that we developed at Cooley uh, with Protocol Labs, we developed the form of an agreement called a SAFT, S-A-F-T, uh, which is, in fact, an investment contract that gives you rights to tokens that will be available in the future. So you're not selling tokens, you're selling in a security. And you sell that only to accredited investors. So you do it in the traditional fashion of selling to people who, for whom you have an exemption to sell to under the SEC's regulations. So that's the, that's sort of a solution that's starting to become best practice in the industry right now is you sell a security to investors, the investors who are best able to absorb investor risk until you're ready to sell something that's consumable and it's really more consumer risk. And then you
0: switch to that approach there. So lastly, Patrick, I got to ask you what on earth just happened with the PBOC?
3: Yeah. And so I think, I think we're all still trying to figure it out a little bit. It doesn't look great for people who are in this kind of token mania phase right now. Um, when you look at the the statement that came out, it, it's pretty forceful. And it's a pretty clear warning to people who are using ICOs as a as a way to either speculate on different things and sell speculative tokens or as a way to raise money from investors uh, in, in China. Uh, so it could become a pretty significant roadblock. And what's interesting is it was followed by a statement from regulators in Hong Kong, where they have affirmed sort of the SEC's take on on this that you know a lot of tokens are could be construed as securities. Um, so there's a securities regulator in Hong Kong as well um, that a lot of tokens could be construed as securities, and if they are, they if you're just selling them to the general public without any sort of registration, then you're more likely than not violating the law. Um, and that, of course, is preceded by Singapore saying the same thing and, and Canada saying the same thing. So what we're starting to see is that a lot of these countries are starting to look, at, you know, start with, starting with the U.S. and now, you know, a number of other countries. And um, it would not surprise me to see ESMA or, or any other um, major uh, countries or, or unions start, start to follow, that if you're selling effectively uh, an investment interest to investors that you need to be aware of and pay attention to securities regulations, um, not just in the U.S. either, in, in the local countries as well, um, although they tend to be fairly, fairly similar and there tends to be some uniformity. I think that there are some open questions now that really need to get resolved around this PVC statement, and it appears to be further out than what all the other regulators we're hearing from are saying. With the other regulators, they're saying we're in line with the SEC that you know some of these things um, could be securities, and if they are, if they're not registered, then this is a problem and we're going to look into this stuff. But the PVC, it feels like a much more forceful statement. Where they're saying, actually, we think that all of these things need to be um, carefully looked at, and it it feels like they've uh, stepped on the brake. Uh, breaks for a little bit here
0: without question it's interesting that uh what some would argue is a, is a state that uh, has spent a lot of time and energy looking at how do they do their own digital currencies and uh how do they build their own blockchains uh to have ones out there that are decentralized uh could be something that they at least want to uh wrap their arms around and understand a little bit more uh you could see the reaction in the markets you could see why i think a lot of uh, financial institutions would say uh oh, this is what we thought all along we, we We can't now enter this space. We'll leave it to the innovators. Um, But what what is your prognosis going forward? Do you think sense is going to prevail? Do you think we're going to see uh, the end of token sales? Like, What do you see in the coming six months?
3: I don't think we'll see the end of token sales because we're already seeing that even sales that just sell to accredited investors only, right? And so Filecoin is a great example of this. They raised over $200 million And they did it only to accredited investors. So this isn't just, you know, some general solicitation where it's fly by night or something like that. This is they're selling into, you know, sophisticated institutional money and they're getting traction. Now I grant you they're a little bit of an outlier, but I think that's what we're gonna see more of. I think that's the future is you're gonna see more of these offerings coming out that are within the regulatory framework. I, I think it would be Unfortunate for China, who has spent, as you pointed out, so much time and effort to to gain. I don't know if I would say a lead in this in the market when it comes to blockchain, but at least a very strong position to miss out on the next phase of this because they just they pump the brakes on on what you know it has been a bit of a wild west, um, but maybe a little bit too aggressively, and they're not leaving the door open for people who want to stay within the boundaries of a proper regulatory framework for for managing investor risk. All
0: right, Patrick, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Patrick, where can people find out more about who you are and what you do?
3: You can always find me at the
0: Berkman Klein Center website um,
3: at Harvard uh, or at Cooley's website as well. Thanks, Simon. I really
0: appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for being on Blockchain Insider, Patrick. A big thanks to all of our guests and thank you to Patrick. Uh, I'm still here with Colin. Colin, where can people find out more about you? Colin G. Platt on Twitter. And Jason, where can people find out more about you, I wonder?
1: Wow, it's like I'm a guest on a show. I never get asked that. It's like you can find me on Twitter, at Jason Bates. Yes, beautiful. And if you want to know more about the
0: team that brings you this, 11fs.com. Uh, and drop us a tweet, at Insider. Until next week, it's Bitcoin Insider. Thank you.